0: We're going to be looking at John 19, 1-12, but I'm going to back up and read starting in chapter 18, verse 38, just to kind of give the context because this is all knitted together here in chapter 18 and 19. So jumping kind of in the middle of the whole scene, Pilate said to Jesus after their conversation, What is truth? After He said this, He went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in Him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber, a criminal. Verse 1 of chapter 19 Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to Him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And struck Him, and struck Him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing Him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in Him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man! And the chief priests and the officers saw Him. They cried out, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! Will you not speak to Me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over Me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, He who delivered Me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release Him. Lord, now open our eyes. Open our ears. Don't let our minds wander. Let us enter into this scene that You, through the servant John, have preserved for us. Not just to give us a few moments passing entertainment or historical thoughts, but to engage our souls with the depth of Your mercy through Jesus. Help us. Help us see it. In Christ we pray. Amen. So in a truly just world this kind of thing would never happen an innocent man condemned to die but this is not a just world and that's the point this is a cruel and broken world of sin a world of pain and suffering and that is why Jesus came to to face the justice and suffer the shame that rightly should have fallen on us in our sin, that through faith in Him we might be set free. And so let's let's look at this this morning and understand what's going on here. So first, just consider the injustice of Christ's innocent suffering. I mean, it begins immediately in verse one. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Jesus is flogged like a criminal. But, but didn't Pilate just say, I find no guilt in Him? In fact, he'll say it twice more. He's not guilty. So take Him out and beat Him. That doesn't make sense in a rational world. But again, this is an irrational world. This is a world where cruel and senseless things happen. And it doesn't make sense to us. Uh, flogging was a common Roman practice and there were, there were different degrees of flogging. At the lowest level, a man could be beaten with rods just enough to teach him a lesson. And sometimes it really had nothing to do with the man himself. A member of the community could be beaten as a warning to others, right? Mess with Rome? This is what you'll get. I mean, Rome was not above that. At the next level, a man who was known to be a criminal could be whipped and beaten quite severely. And and the goal was indeed to inflict maximum pain as an act of punishment for his crime, but it wouldn't kill him, it would only leave him scarred for life. The next level, a man who was condemned to die... Could be scourged. And so a little different word is used here. This is the highest level. Scourging. And scourging was meant to be brutal. It was reserved for the true criminal and for the traitors who had been sentenced to death. And honestly, it's not the kind of thing that you would ever want to be a witness to in real life. Or in present life. Some years ago, the Journal of the American Medical Association produced a paper called On the Physical Death of Jesus Christ. You can find that online. On the Physical Death of Jesus Christ, and just looking at the evidence historically and from what they could gather, they, they described each stage leading to the crucifixion. Of scourging, they said this: scourging or flogging was a legal preliminary to every Roman execution, and only women and Roman senators or soldiers, except in the case of deserters, were exempt. The usual treatment, the usual instrument, was a short whip, a flagellum, with several single or braided leather thongs of varying lengths in which small iron bars and sharp pieces of sheep bone were tied at intervals. For scourging, the man was stripped of his clothing. His hands were tied to an upright post. Uh, The back and buttocks and legs would then be flogged uh, either by two soldiers called lictors, one on either side in alternating positions, or by one who would just trade places." The severity of the scourging depended on the disposition of the lictors and was intended to weaken the victim just short of a state of collapse or death. As the Roman soldiers repeatedly struck the victim's back with full force, the iron bars would cause deep deep contusions and the leather thongs and sheep bones would cut into the skin and underlying tissues." Then, as the flogging continued, the lacerations would begin to tear into the underlying muscles and begin to produce ribbons of quivering and bleeding flesh. Pain and blood loss generally set the stage for circulatory shock. The extent of the blood loss may well have determined how long the victim would survive on the cross. We don't know how severe this First beating of Jesus was. The other Gospels indicate that this might have been the first of two beatings. Because at this point, Pilate still hopes that he can find a way to have Jesus released. In Luke chapter 23-22, he says, I found no guilt in Him deserving death. I will therefore punish Him and then release Him. And so maybe at this point, it is one of those lighter beatings. Cruel and painful, yes, but not quite murderous but we do know eventually he will face the other one as well so either this is the severe beating or the severe beating is is still to come and we know that's going to come because matthew 27:26 will actually use that specific word to scourge and so jesus an innocent man is beaten cruelly then notice he is mocked verse 2 and 3 and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple or really a deep scarlet robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And struck him with their hands. This is a mock coronation. And you can imagine these soldiers, they've had just about their fill of Jewish patriots and prophets. They hate this place. They hate these people. They're sick and tired of hearing about a Jewish king who's going to come and liberate Jerusalem and kill all the Romans. And now they've got their hands on one whom they believe is making the claim to be that guy. And so they decide to hold a little coronation. A king needs a crown, of course, and so they fashion one out of the thorns of a date palm. Those could grow up to a foot in length. Uh, look them up, they're quite gruesome, and they take that crown and they crush it up on his head, ripping the flesh, but giving the appearance of a king's corona on his head. A king must have a royal robe, and so they take an officer's cloak, which, as I say, is more of a deep scarlet than a true purple. Uh, Purple was reserved for the highest of royalty, that's why they use it, but they drape it over his bruised shoulders and over his torn back. Then, of course, the king must be hailed by his subjects and given kisses of greeting. Verse 3 says that they they came to him kneeling, crying out in a mocking voice, Hail, King of the Jews! As they strike him repeatedly in the face. And these words emphasize the repetition. This isn't just one or two slaps, but Jesus is beaten in the face again and again and again. Matthew 27.30 says that they spat on Him and they took a reed and began to strike Him also in the head. Mark says they treated Him shamefully. Luke 22.64 and 65 says they blindfolded Him and began to punch Him in the face saying, prophesy! Who just hit you? And did many other things against Him, blaspheming Him. By the time Pilate brings Him out to the crowd in verses 4 and 5, Jesus is a beaten Bloody mess. If you'd have been there, you would have turned your face away in horror. You might even have thrown up. But it's just as Isaiah said seven hundred years before, Isaiah fifty three verse three, he was He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. All this was done to an innocent man. Pilate even says it again in verse 4, "I find no guilt in him. What on earth could explain such savage cruelty? What is it that dwells in the heart of man that we do such things? You ever been mistreated? You ever face the unjust cruelty of people in this broken world? You ever look up into heaven and cry, why God? As you shake your fist in the air because he doesn't understand. Oh friend, look to Jesus. Look what he so willingly endured. He who is perfect and innocent and without sin went through this. Hebrews 12.3 says, "...Consider Him, think about Him who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself so that you may not grow weary and faint hearted You think that Jesus does not understand suffering? Look what He endured. And know that He chose this so that He could become your Savior. First Peter 3.18 For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous one for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. He endured all for our sake. Again, Isaiah says in Isaiah 53.3, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement, the scourging, that brought us peace. And by His wounds, we are healed. The man of perfect justice endured the injustice of man's sin that he might free us from its tyranny. Oh friend, listen. Look to Christ. Is there injustice in this world? Is there cruelty? Oh yeah, far too much. Even as we're here now, down where the Super Bowl is being held, we know this is one of the highest uh, sex trafficking weekends of the year in this country. You think Jesus doesn't know doesn't understand the suffering. Do things happen here in this world that should never, ever happen? Things, when they happen to you, that leave you bitter and broken if you let them? Yeah, we need to understand that. We don't need to be fools. This is a broken, bitter world that has no answers in itself for its brokenness. No solution to our cruelty. But God has a solution. It's a broken Savior who took all upon Himself that we might be made whole. The injustice of His suffering. Second, notice the injustice of Christ's brutal condemnation. Picking up in verse 4. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing Him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in Him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man! When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered, We have a law, and according to that law, he must die, because he has made himself the Son of God. So Three times Pilate says it, I find no guilt in him, and I just want to scream, then why are you beating him like this? Why have you commanded this mistreatment? It doesn't make sense. But again, we saw last week, Pilate is not a man who has the courage of his convictions. Pilate is not the kind of man who is going to take a stand. He's afraid of losing his place of influence. By the way, when that becomes your main goal in life, to keep what you've got, you will throw integrity out the window and you will become capable of horrid things. Don't kid yourself. Pilate brings Jesus out, his face covered with blood and bruises, his eyes swollen, back torn from the beating, and with that ridiculous crown on his head and that robe of mockery. Pilate declares, Behold the man! Now, if this was a real coronation, he would have said, behold the king! Here he says, behold the man. Now, maybe Pilate is trying to play on their sympathies at this point. Look at this poor creature. Look what I've done to him. Look what you made me do. Oh, surely this is enough. Surely he suffered enough and, and we can let him go. Behold the man! Well, we can't climb into Pilate's head. We don't really know what he meant, but John records this because he wants to make sure we hear those words. Behold, the man. What man? This man. This man of sorrows who is acquainted with suffering. The man. In John's own native Hebrew or Aramaic, this would have been Ha'adam. The Adam. The Adam. For here we must understand stands the second Adam, Christ, who came to bear Adam's guilt and Adam's sin. And oh, not just Adam, my guilt and my sin. Christ comes as the innocent lamb to be slain for our sins. I mean, didn't John the Baptist say that at the beginning of this gospel? Behold the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And here he is. Behold the man. And actually, it's a quote from the Old Testament. Pilate wouldn't have known that, but John does. And John wants to make sure that we do. Because in the providence of God who is working all these things to accomplish His sovereign purpose and salvation, Pilate speaks far more than he knows. Behold, the man. Originally, those words are found in Genesis 3.22. You can look them up later. But immediately following Adam's fall into sin, that curse fell upon him and upon the world, and that curse still rules this world. That's why we're in the mess we're in. And after after Adam's sin, God, in the council of the Trinity, said, Behold the man. He's become like one of us in that he's, he's seen what sin is. He's understood it. Now, when God sees and understands sin, it doesn't affect Him. But when we do, when we experience it, it gets into our bones. And here is Adam in his sin. Here is Adam whose rebellion broke the world and brought death to everyone. Behold, the man in his sin. That first, behold, announces condemnation. Guilt and alienation from God will now plague man's world because of that sin. And if that behold announcing sin had the final say in this world, there would be no hope for any of us. As Paul says in Colossians, we would be without hope and without God in the world. But now we see that there is a second behold that opens up the door to hope. Behold, the man here announces the innocence of Christ who has come to bear Adam's sin and to take Adam's shame and to die the death Adam and we deserve so that rather than being alienated from God as Adam was, we might be reconciled. Behold, the man. Now when the crowd hears those words, how do they react? With joy and gratitude and sounds of praise? Well, no. Verse 6. The chief priests and the officers, who should have recognized those words, by the way, saw him. They cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Crucify! Crucify! It must have been a deafening sound because by now the crowd would have grown quite large. John only mentions the priests and the officers here because they're the instigators of this, but Luke and the others tell us that there was by now a huge crowd being whipped into frenzy by the priests. Luke twenty three twenty one says, and they kept on shouting and kept on shouting, crucify, 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 Staurasun, Staurasun. In the Greek, but probably it was an Aramaic. Tzolon, 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 Tzolon. Can't you hear it? Over and over again as they cry for the blood of Jesus. Studies have shown recently, and we knew this, but it's always good to have a study, that there's a madness that can take hold of a crowd at a time like this. A madness where otherwise decent people get swept along and take part in things they would never even dream of doing on their own. It's part of the rottenness that dwells within the human heart. And don't kid you, a piece of that dwells within you. Think of ordinary citizens in Nazi Germany who just look the other way. Other crowds that get swept along. We we like to think... We'd like to think if we were there, we never would have been a part of this thing. Not me. But I think the hymn that we sang has it right. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. Crucify! Crucify! Pilate cries out in response, Why? Mark 15. What has He done? And they shout all the louder, Crucify! Crucify! And Pilate says, "Take him yourself and crucify him. I find no guilt in him. You know, leave me out of this." In verse seven: The Jewish leaders shout their reply. We have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he has made himself out to be the son of God. Now that's news to Pilate. That's not the same accusation they brought before him earlier. Remember when they brought Jesus to him, they accused him of insurrection. Something Pilate could understand. This man is trying to be a king like Caesar. But now they said something else. Something Pilate has not heard until now. In fact, it's the original charge the Sanhedrin had made against Jesus among themselves. He's a blasphemer who's made himself out to be God. And the law says such men must die. That's how they interpreted Leviticus 24.16. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord will surely be put to death. But Pilate hasn't heard this accusation before. And it kind of freaks him out as we're going to see. Because he's already begun to wonder, who is this man? What have I gotten myself into? that brings us to the third thing that we need to see this morning. And that is God's sovereignty in this. The sovereign mercy of God that sends Christ to the cross. Verse 8, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. There's there's fear in Pilate's eyes. Now remember, remember, Pilate is a man of the first century with all of the superstition that would go with that. As a Roman, he's a polytheist. He believes in the existence of many gods and goddesses and divine beings of all kinds. So whatever skepticism he may have had about Jewish religion, he believes in a supernatural world around and above him. And now this sudden claim, this man says he's the Son of God. has got his attention. Now to Jewish years... Son of God could be a messianic claim. I mean, even kings in the Old Testament are sometimes called Son of God. There was Jewish literature at the time that would talk about the Messiah using this phrase, the Son of God. And so the problem with Jesus isn't really these particular words. The problem is that He has taken this claim, as they see it, far too far in saying that He actually shares in the deity of God. And as monotheists who believe there's only one God and it's the Father in Heaven, they just dismiss this. This is blasphemy away with Him. But to Pilate's ears as a first century pagan... Well, this is potentially terrifying. Pilate was already perplexed about Jesus, remember, by the power and the authority with which Jesus spoke even as a condemned man. And didn't Jesus just say something about being from another world, that He Himself was indeed a king from another world, as Pilate questions Him in verse 37? Now, Pilate may have dismissed that claim then, but now? And then there's that disturbing message Matthew tells us he had just received from his wife, Matthew twenty-seven, verse nineteen, in the midst of the of the of the trial, his wife sends him a note, have nothing to do with this righteous man, for I've suffered much because of him in a dream. Pilate is genuinely freaked out. Roman theology had a place for divine beings who came and in the appearance of men. Maybe you remember Uh, Acts 14.11 Paul came across that he healed someone and they said the gods have come down in the likeness of men. And every Roman knew you come up against one of those guys you better be very careful you don't mess with those guys. But Pilate has just had this man brutally beaten mocked and is just about to send him to his death. He's got to be thinking I'm in deep trouble here. I don't know what to do. He calls Jesus back inside in verse 9 and says to Him, Where are you from? Literally, from where are you? You said it wasn't from this world. Where then? I mean, seriously, Jesus, who are you? But Jesus makes no answer at all. Again, fulfilling. Isaiah 53, He was oppressed. And he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he opened not his mouth. And in that silence, Pilate can hear outside the call of the crowd that is still chanting, Crucify! Crucify! Well, that seems to push Pilate right over the edge. (laughs) By now, he is a desperate man. He is a terrified man. You ever been in that place where, where you know you've got to do something, but you have no idea what to do? I, I mean, at that point, you would do anything to get out of this mess. You would scream, you would beg, you would threaten just to get an answer. That's basically what Pilate does, verse 10. He says, Will you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? don't you know who I am Jesus don't you realize the power I hold over you why do you remain silent don't you know that what I can do for you or even to you come on I'm the one in charge here I'm in control I have all the cards in my hand you must answer me yeah but really why would he Pilate's already shown how little concern he has for the truth. What is truth? He said. And he's demonstrated again and again, he's not going to act on even the truth that he does have. This man is innocent. Three times he says it as he sends Jesus to be beaten and mocked and soon to be crucified. Why give an answer to a man who refuses to act on the truth he already has? What about you, by the way? Why should Christ reveal anything to you if you're unwilling to believe and act on what He's already shown you? I mean, once you see truth, you can't just unsee it and you become responsible for it. No, you must act in obedience to the truth that you have received if you hope to receive anything more. He doesn't owe you anything. Pilate says, don't you know that I'm the one with authority here? I hold all the cards. Jesus says, but do you really? In fact, I think the next words hit Him like a ton of bricks. Jesus says, you would have no authority over Me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, He who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Pilate, it's not about you. It's never been about you. You have no final authority over me. Pilate, this is way above your pay grade. When you thought you were in charge, think again. If there was ever a word... We need to hear in this age of man-centered self-pretension. I think this may be it. We are drunk with the illusion of personal autonomy. We look in the mirror and we say, I-, I make the rules. I get to decide what's right for me. I get to choose my own morality. I get to decide, no one else, just me. No one higher than me. My rules, my righteousness, my choices, my feelings, my desires. That's what matters. And Jesus says, You have no idea what you are saying. That's true for Pilate. It's true for us. You have no authority whatsoever except what heaven chooses to loan you for a time. You thought this was all in your hands? Oh no, you're in God's hands. Whether you feel it, whether you like it, whether you think it or not. Listen, there is a God. You are not Him. You better deal with it. Ultimately, this is what Christ is talking about. God's supreme authority over Pilate, over Caesar. So yes, yes, on a human scale, we can understand this, that Pilate got his authority from Caesar and it's Caesar's word that Pilate has been worried about all this time. But on the grand scale, even Caesar has no power except what God has chosen to loan him. Right? Romans 13 verse 1, For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist, like Caesar or whoever, have been instituted by God. They've been loaned authority to accomplish God's purpose of order in the universe, but they are not the sources of that authority. Pilate himself can do nothing at all except what God's sovereign purpose and will overrules him to do. You know, the early church understood that very clearly. Even as they were facing severe persecution... Do you remember how they prayed? Acts chapter 4, verse 27, they said, Truly in this city of Jerusalem there were gathered together against Your holy servant Jesus whom You anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. And what did they all do? Verse 28, to do whatever Your hand and Your plan had predestined to take place. There was never a moment and there never will be one where God is not ultimately in control. You need to know that. Now, does that let Pilate off the hook? Right? You know, Pilate's just a pawn, so he's not responsible. No, 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 no. He still bears the guilt for his choices, and by the way, so do you. Look at the rest of verse 11. He says, you know, this is all from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater guilt. Sin, the greater sin. Pilate has sin. Pilate is guilty for his actions, and so are you. Pilate acted out of ignorance and cowardice, and that's bad enough. He's responsible, but these other men, Annas, Caiaphas, the Sanhedrin, they sinned against the truth. They knew better or should have, but they chose to do this anyway. They bear the greater culpability, the greater sin here. Listen, every one of us will stand before God and give answer to Him for the sins we have committed. You just need to put that in your date book, your calendar. You don't know what date to put it, but the day is coming. We are responsible. But understand this, none of your sins can ever thwart the plan and purpose of God. God rules this world in such a way that all will be done according to His sovereign purpose. But even our sins for which we are responsible can do nothing ultimately to derail those purposes. God in His brilliant wisdom and perfect... Uh, 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 Ordaining of all things that shall come to pass interweaves and works our rebellions and sin to push them along and bring about exactly what he has purposed. And what is God purposed here in all these events we're reading about? What is he working through the wicked actions of these men? I'll let the prophet Isaiah, whom I've quoted a couple of times, tell us. Isaiah 53, verse 10, he says, "...yet it was the will of the Lord to crush Him." That is Christ. "...and He has put Him to grief." When His soul makes an offering for guilt... Now there it is. Christ, the willing offering of sin, the Son sent by the Father, empowered by the Spirit, a guilt offering for our sins. Then it says Christ will see His offspring. He will prolong His days. There's going to be a resurrection. And the will of the Lord will prosper in His hand. He'll accomplish everything He set out to do. Out of the anguish of His soul, He shall see and be satisfied. Christ is satisfied with what He accomplishes there. And by His knowledge shall the Righteous One, My servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He makes people righteous because He has borne their iniquities. So yes, the Lamb will die, but not as a helpless victim of men. He will die as the sovereign sin bearer from God. God sent Christ the Son to the cross where he willingly laid down his life and took it up again that by faith we might be reconciled to God. Have you come to see this truth? I don't just mean see it like a fact of history, but to to relish it, to rejoice in it, to depend on it. Not just in your head, because you acknowledge that it actually happened. Yes, it actually happened, but there's more here in your heart where you embrace Him as the truth eternally and rely on Him to rescue you. Oh friend, that's the difference between heaven and heaven. And hell. That's the difference between bearing your own guilt and knowing His forgiveness. Not just hearing the truth with your ears as we've done, but embracing that truth as it brings you to Christ. Oh, Father, would you help us? Even now, every heart here, I have no authority over a single heart. You have every authority over every heart. So Lord God, Master, Redeemer, open hearts. Let us see Jesus for who He is. Let us see and believe for what He has done. Move hearts to embrace Christ. For it is in Your name we pray. Amen. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together as it points us to Jesus and who He is. And every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, this is what we're doing. We are remembering Him in His sacrifice and rejoicing in what He has accomplished. We are saying again to our soul and to one another, Christ died for my sins, and He did it in a way that has cleared away my guilt that I might gain eternal life in Him. We're being reminded that in Him... God counts my sins paid and gives me the gift of his righteousness by which I'm able to stand. Is that your glad declaration this morning, Saint? And if you're with us and you've never trusted Christ, I invite you to do so. I would beg you, as if we were just the two of us alone, look to Christ. See Him for who He is. Understand what it is He's done and and put your faith in Him personally. It starts there. I can't move you there. God can move you there. That's what I'm praying. That's why I'm asking Him. But I pray that you would be moved there. And then tell someone about it. Tell someone you're trusting in Christ. Be obedient to Christ in baptism and, and follow up with, with joining a church where you're going to where you're going to hear the word regularly. You're going to be encouraged and strengthened and taught what it means to walk with Him. And we would be glad to be that church. But the Lord's Supper is for those who are by faith now walking with Christ in this new life. And so if you're with us, if you're trusting in Christ and fellowship with other believers, we invite you we welcome you to to join with us. But if not, and brothers, if you would go ahead and come and we'll prepare the table. If not, or you're just not sure, we would ask you to wait and observe as we celebrate Christ and we will be praying that He indeed will open your heart and mind. And so as you've heard for so many times, the Lord Jesus... He took the bread, He took the cup off the table and He told us that it's about Him, that it it is the reminder of who He is and what He's accomplished. And so they're going to distribute this, you're going to hold on to it, but use this next few minutes to think what that means, to think how precious it is, to, to think of the Gospel it points to and then we'll celebrate together.